This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Tom Rayner. He's actually been on the show before, so you guys can check out his old interview as well. But he is an author, church consultant, and former pastor. He's also the founder and CEO of Church Answers. So Church Answers is an online community and research for church leaders. And before that, he actually was the CEO of Lifeway. And before coming to Lifeway, he served at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for 12 years, where he was the founding dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions and Evangelism. So he has written three best-selling books, but he's written over 40 books at this point. And today we're just talking about, I think he said it was book 39 of 41. He's got two that haven't been released yet, but it's this book right here. When the people pray an invitation to intercede for your pastor and revive your church. And so he's also the host of the Rainer on leadership podcast, but to go back to the book, when people pray, this is basically a 30 day devotional to help you pray for your pastor, which frankly is not really something that I've ever really thought about too much. It's like, shouldn't they be praying for me? Shouldn't they be doing it for me? And so I kind of got, you know, rebuked for that selfishness as I was reading it, but we're going to talk about, you know, preparation. Like what does a pastor go through to, through to prepare their sermon every week? And what are the other jobs that they do? What about unwarranted criticism? What about warranted criticism for people that are saying heretical or non-doctrinal things? What, you know, how should they study the word? How should they balance studying the word and being a caregiver? Also, we talked about how do you do a funeral for someone that you know, isn't a Christian or wasn't a Christian? Like, how do you care for the family while giving a gospel presentation to everybody else that may be, you know, fertile soil for the gospel in that moment? And then we talked about weariness, because I got to be honest, when pastors complain about their job, I'm like, I'm sorry, are you coal mining? Like, are you climbing, you know, cell towers, like, you know, hundreds of feet up? Like, what exactly is so hard? Are you working rotating shifts? And so, you know, I kind of had fun with that question with him because he himself is a former pastor. But also we got into courage. And how a lot of modern day pastors don't have the courage to push back against the, you know, government mandates during COVID or against the racial grift of Black Lives Matter or against the LGBTQ plus revolution that's coming for their kids and for the public schools and everything else. They just don't have the courage. They don't have the, the chutzpah, I guess, to really push back against these things. And then also what pastors can do about temptation and how that's something that they could become very susceptible to. So we weaved in and out a lot today. I really enjoyed my time with Tom. I always enjoy my time with Tom. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, Tom, great to see you as always. Welcome back. Oh, man, thank you for letting me be here. This is going to be a fun time of interview, I think. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> don't oversell it. We barely gotten started, and uh, people didn't see this because I edited it out, but I already messed up my intro once. But <clears throat> here's the deal, Tom. I'm a pretty busy guy. I got a lot of mm-hmm. things going on. I got a lot of irons in the fire. I got a lot of people that need my time and attention, and you are that person as well, but to a more severe degree. And yet somehow you still have time to put out books like every three or four weeks. Can you help me understand how it is possible that you write so many books? I just finished book number 41, Kyle. It, uh, it's different than the others in that it's a fiction book. In fact, it's a fable about a church, as you can imagine. Almost everything I write is in the church, a church leadership genre. And so I just finished number 41. Basically, the more you do it, the more you can do it and the more quantity you can do. I remember my first book took me a year to write. And then I also remember when Tyndale called me up during the pandemic and said, can you write a book about where, what you think churches can do when they come out of the pandemic? I said, sure. They said, I said, how long, how long do you have for me to get it written? They said, can you do it in three weeks? I said, okay. 
So I wrote, I wrote the book in 18 days. Now, one thing that has changed with my writing is smaller books. I've gone from 70,000 words to 25,000 as, as an average. So the, the length of the book is cut down significantly, but most of it is just like anything else. You do a lot of it and it becomes easier. I mean, you pray more, you, it, it becomes more natural or supernatural. I should say you're in the word more. You, you get habits, get learned and formed. And that's the case with uh, writing. I think I do not consider myself the consummate writer, especially when I get the uh, manuscripts back from the, from the editor, it looks nasty. It just, I mean, we used to call it red ink, but whatever, whatever you call it now, uh, I can tell that I have a long way to go, but I'm grateful I have good editors. Um, and the, the other thing that makes doing books kind of easy is um, I'm passionate about the topic. And if I'm passionate about the topic, it's, it's kind of like uh, uh, when, when, when uh, was it John and Peter? I believe that's right. Were put in prison and the Sanhedrin told them to shut up talking about Jesus. And they said in Acts 4.20, I cannot help but speak about the things that we have seen and heard. Well, kill us if you want to, imprison us if you want to, but you can't shut us up. Well, when I start work, talking about churches and church leaders, specifically pastors, I am passionate about that. There's a reason for it. I've been one. Uh, number number two, I have three sons that are pastors. They all started out in the business world, and they are pastors. And naturally, at Church Answers, we serve a lot of pastors, too. So that's a long answer. You just wanted to know how I write so many books. I don't know how I talk that long on it. I'm really sorry. Yeah, Tom, from here on out, I'm just going to ask yes, no, or what color do you <laughs> feel like? Um, and so we'll just kind of figure it out. But no, I appreciate that, imp that input because I was going to ask you about the length of the book as well, uh, because I have a stack of your books on my bookshelf over here, thanks to you, because you sent them over to us after your first interview. And they're all short. And I kind of thought that most publishers, the way that they thought is like, okay, if it's under 200 pages, it's not a serious book. If it's over 250 pages, no one is going to read it. And so that's why most of the books on my shelf are in that 200 to 250. And you kind of broke out of that mold, which, you know, hey, whatever the people are going to end up reading, like that's what we need to do. And so the latest book of yours, uh, I guess this is, is this book 40 or would this, uh, uh, when this the is people actually pray? 30, 30, 39, two are being released in 2024. Okay, very good. So it's called When the People Pray, an invitation to intercede for your pastor and revive your church. So let me read a short quote from the book just to set it up. It is my prayer that this book and your decision to read it are a divine intersection. You see, if you really take this plan seriously and pray for your pastor for the next 30 days, you could see your church transformed. I'm serious. So why'd you write the book? for the reasons you just stated, but yeah. there's an experiential reason behind it too. When I was a pastor many, many years ago, uh, I was a pastor at four churches, but I, I need to put it in a transparent perspective. The last time I pastored was the mid nineties. So, you know, some, somewhere in antiquity, I was, <laughs> I was a pastor. Uh, after that, I went to be Dean of a seminary, then president of Lifeway and now church answer. So it's been a long time. When I was a pastor, I hit a low point, a really low point preached a sermon that I thought did not have much of God's spirit in it. I could go back and think I can recall that I did not put much work into it. I don't know if burnout was the word, but I was sure I was at wit's end to say the least. And I did something probably I would not recommend to other pastors unless you truly know that God is in it. I just, at the end of the sermon, I said, can I just be honest with you folks? I'm struggling right now. 
I'm struggling in pastoral ministry. My family's struggling a bit. I didn't give them details. I said, but I'm, I'm just struggling. And uh, I'm just going to ask you to pray for me, but not just to pray for me, which I find to be challenging because I'm supposed to be serving you and I'm asking you to help me. Uh, but if you will commit to praying for me, will you let me know? And two days later, Frances Mason came to my office. She was probably about 80 at the time. And she said, I took you seriously, Pastor. I said, thank you, Francis. She said, I'm going to pray for you every day at noon. She said, it may only be 30 seconds. It may be five minutes, but I'm going to pray for you every day at noon. I said, Francis, that means the world to me. She says, I hope you don't mind that I recruited a few more people. <laughs> I said, gosh, no. She recruited over 100 people to pray for me. And by the time others had joined, it was significantly higher than that. I don't remember the number. I got to say, Kyle, that that was my most meaningful part of pastoral ministry. It was my most powerful part of pastoral ministry. Why? Because it wasn't time-powered. It was God-powered, and it was interceded by God's people. The reality is I've wanted to write this book for some time. Don't ask me why I haven't, because I don't have a good answer. I'll just have to make up something. But I've wanted to write this book for some time. And, you know, this, this is a book that even if you don't get any royalties, <laughs> I want this book in the hands of a lot of people because I want people praying for their pastor. As I indicated to you at the, at the onset of your questions, my, my prolonged answers to what should be yes or no and what color type of questions, as I indicated to you, if we can get in the habit of something, then we can get better at something. And this is a 30-day type of kickoff where you, you, you just commit to pray for your pastor for 30 days and see what God will do. And it may not end at the 30 days. I would not presume, but I hope a lot of people get in the habit for it. There's another reality. Pastors, like a lot of other people, are struggling right now. It's common. Um, churches are down in, in, in attendance, and that numbers are everything. But that means fewer people are hearing God's word preached and proclaimed. And pastors are seeing a lot of problems, and they're feeling those problems. Intercession is always needed. But I feel at my age, at this time of life and ministry, I can say I feel the burden for pastors more than any other time. And that's, I guess, why I wrote this book. Hey guys, real quick, as you may have heard me mention previously, before I started this Undaunted Life thing full time, I worked in insurance and financial advisement. Now, while doing that, I got to sit down with literally hundreds of families to discuss their financial plans and goals. I got to see some families that had all their ducks in a row, but unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of the people I sat down with had major holes in their financial plans. So whether it was not diversifying their retirement investments, having no plan for replacement income if the breadwinner became too sick or too hurt to work, or even having a plan for the death of a family member, most American families have left themselves very exposed to potential financial ruin. So that's why I want to introduce you to my friend and my financial advisor, Mike McCall with Bluecrest Financial. Now, Mike can help you reach your chosen financial goals by helping you develop an overall plan to ensure you and your family's financial success. So whether it's IRAs or stocks or rollovers or life insurance or long-term care, disability income, you name it, Mike can help. Now, just imagine the peace of mind that comes with knowing that you're taking proactive steps towards financial security for you and your loved ones. Think about the legacy you could leave behind. 
something that truly reflects your conservative values and the hard work you put in throughout your life. So I trust Mike McCall with my financial planning. So I think you should give him a shot as well. So to receive your free personal and or business financial assessment, go to the link in the show notes for this episode to book a 15 minute Zoom call with Mike. Don't try to piecemeal your own financial plan. Let an expert help you. Again, go to the link in the bio, click that link in the bio to get your free assessment. And the way that you have the book set up, Tom, is really interesting because you have basically a category that guides the chapter. You have some scriptural references. You have some anecdotes, uh, typically from your your personal life to kind of bring it to life. And then you kind of give some commentary. And so we're obviously not going to go over all 30 today. You'll have to get the book. It is in the show notes for that. But I do want to highlight a few because I have some questions. So we'll, we'll pull them out, you know, day by day. And then we'll look at a few quotes and then kind of go from there. So the first one I wanted to talk about was actually day four. And that is called Mm -hmm. preparation. So I'll read this quote here. I wish I had your job, pastor. You only work one hour a week. Certainly most most church members make such claims in jest. They know a pastor's work week is not limited to one hour on Sunday morning. They know the pastor does more than preach a sermon once a week. Now, you're a more generous uh, person than I am because I don't think most people do realize that because I think most people are stupid. And so most people will look at somebody and be like, this is all you do. They will watch an NFL game on Sunday and think, oh, these people work three hours a week and they made, you know, $400,000 today. This is ridiculous. And they don't take into account any of the other things that go on. But why do you think that's so important for us to pray for the preparation that a pastor has to put in on a week in, week out basis? I have a bias. And I I hope it's a good bias that the pulpit is centered to the life of the church. Uh, I have a bias that the teaching and the preaching of God's word is what shapes a lot of the ethos and the power of the church. And the sermon does not just appear. There, There may be a few extemporaneous preachers out there that it just appears and spirit gives you something and you can say it. But for most pastors, it does not just appear. It's labor. It's a labor of love. Uh, it's not always a labor of pain, but it's a labor of love. And whether you have digital commentaries or you have artificial intelligence or you have whatever, it ultimately comes down to the pastor getting into God's word and studying it and bathing in it. That is the time that we need to be praying for our pastors in addition to these other times, because what takes place during that preparation, God's spirit is already working during the preparation. We need to pray that the pastor will be sensitive to the spirit. We need to pray that he will hear the spirit and we will need, we need to pray that what come from his study will be right for the church in an Esther like fashion at such a time as this is not just standing up and talking. It's all the work that goes before this. The last study that we did on pastors and sermon preparation time has been, it's it's been several years since it's lapsed. So I don't, I don't want to say that this is current data, but, but, in that quote that you read and the number of hours that you read, 15 to 20 hours, uh, 15 to 25 hours, what it said in the book, that coincides somewhat with the research we had. It was on the lower side, somewhere between 15 and 20, that we actually were able to do time studies of pastors, and this is what the time they did. It's a lot of time, and if that's what a pastor is doing, and that is part of his primary calling, we, we just need to be praying for him during that time. Well, Tom, I feel like, you know, because a lot of people talk to me about <clears throat> my job, which is screaming uh, things into a microphone. And they're like, well, yeah, you know, you just kind of do these interviews and you kind of do these other episodes, but it seems like you just kind of flow. And it's like, do you understand how much pre-work it takes to seem like I'm just flowing? Because Absolutely. every person that sends me a book, guess what I do with it, Tom? 
I read it. You read it. And then, and then I pull out quotes and apply it. You know, like that takes a lot of time. And, and you not only read it, but you're looking ahead as you read it, which most podcasters don't do because they haven't read it ahead of time. So they're they're thumbing through the book at that. You've already prepared and I, I don't know what you're reading, but you've already extracted the quote and you have it right up there for you. So you're one of these prepared podcasters. So if podcasting communicating an important message, yes, preaching is communicating an important message. When I'll say what this book, I'll try to give you compliments based on me personally as to what this book has helped me to do. The first compliment I want to give you is I've never really even thought about praying for my pastor because I was like, that's his job. He's supposed to pray to me, pray for me. So it made me feel, you know, a little bit like a selfish jerk. Thank you so much, Tom. And so I've been able to turn that around, but also with with also with this part, I and this will kind of go from day four right into day six, which is what I want to ask about next. I have a very critical spirit because I love things to be excellent. And if I see somebody that has potential, but they're leaving something to be desired, I hate that because I want them to maximize, right? And so <clears throat> when I when I think about being critical of my pastor and the way that he approaches his sermons, because his sermons are very formulaic, he does the exact same style of sermon on a week in, week out basis. I have to remember. Well, that style didn't just come out of the sky. Like this is a sword that this dude has been sharpening week in and week out for decades. And this is just the way it's presented. Is it my favorite? No. Is it effective? And does it get the, does he exegete the scripture so that, you know, it can be applied to us and for us to understand where we are in in the story of God and where we aren't in the story of God, where, you know, it's just the word in and of itself. Yes. And so it's like, shut up, stop being so critical, just move on with your life. So let's talk about day six. Let's talk about criticism. Let me read this quote here. Pastors need intercession in three major ways. First, they need prayer to withstand criticism. Second, they need church members to stand up for them and, if necessary, challenge and rebuke those who lob unwarranted criticism. Third, they need intercessions of encouragement. As one pastor shared with us, he began to believe he was as bad as his critic as his critics said, because no other church members said otherwise. So I'm going to co-sign most of that because if somebody's you know throwing slings and arrows at your pastor and it's not warranted, sure, stand up for him. And I've encouraged guys to do that a lot. It's like, look, if you want your pastor to talk about incendiary topics like the pro-life issue, go into his office and say, guess what? If you start talking about this, I'm going to stand in front of you and I got about a dozen more guys ready to do the same and we're going to take mm-hmm. some of these slings and arrows. So that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about warranted criticism. I want to talk about people that are maybe in Atlanta right now, hanging out at North Point Community Church, and they see some of the things Andy Stanley is saying and doing, especially in these last several months here, and think to themselves, no, not only is that not biblical, that's heretical. You shouldn't do this. You need to repent. And then you have people that will come to Andy Stanley's defense. I'm just using him as an example. They'll come to a guy like that's defense because he's their guy. And what they've done is they've actually placed themselves on the wrong side of the ledger, on the non-biblical side of the ledger. And they're doing it out of this, you know, desire to have oneness with their pastor and to be seen as uh, as defending him. So I want to talk about warranted criticism. So give me a little bit more on that. I divide criticism of pastors into two broad categories, warranted and preferential criticism. Preferential criticism is when the pastor does not do something that you would like for him to do. In other words, it's a preference issue. It is a stylistic issue. It may be a time issue. That is where most pastors get most of their criticism. Here's the bad news, Kyle. Many pastors can preach heresy and not get as much criticism if they go five minutes over their normal time. Isn't that crazy? So, yeah, warranted criticism. If someone is aberrant doctrinally, 
challenge them. If, 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 if someone has misspoke in a way that is an obvious deception from the pulpit, challenge them. My point in all of this is pastors die at death of a thousand cuts by unwarranted criticism. I am not suggesting pastors are perfect. I've never known one that was perfect, even though my wife would say her three sons are, but her husband is not. I, I have never seen a perfect pastor. So the reality of it is there will always be some errors. But warranted criticism is not only that they have done something negative, but does it rise to the level of needing rebuke? Okay. That would be the second thing. So I'll stop there. Let you let you no, follow no, no. up. Like, well, let me let me hop back in there on that same thing. So this is how I handle criticism. When somebody criticizes my show, if I would not take advice from them, I'm also not going to accept their criticism. That's kind of a category, you know, uh, hack for me is like, look, if I don't trust you enough to give me good advice, I'm not going to trust you enough to give me good criticism. Not to say that that makes their criticism incorrect by any means, but it's like, look, it's I don't have filter. time. Yeah. It's my filter. I don't have time to deal with everybody that doesn't like everything that I do. Should pastors just, uh, I don't know, just respond a little more rudely or maybe not rudely, but curtly and be like, thank you so much for your feedback. I'll take it under advisement. I feel like a lot of pastors will trip over themselves being like, Oh, sure. Let me go ahead and accommodate you because I don't want you to be late to your buffet. I think you're absolutely right. And if I'm, if I'm talking to a pastor about dealing with this, I say the first thing that you've got to learn is that you need to walk away from some of these. And it may be a brief comment that is partially polite, maybe not so polite, but pastors spend more time on those who are, those who are the wrong type of critics. And that takes away from the pastoral ministry of those who are legitimate needs within the church. And so I'm encouraging more and more pastors and have been for some time, gauge that pastor. I mean, Cal Thompson has this filter and I like your filter. If I wouldn't take advice from them, would I take their criticism? Pastors can develop their own filter. And is this someone in the church that really has the church's best at heart? Mm. Is this someone in the church that really has the pastor's best at heart and the pastor's family? Or is this someone that is a perpetual critic that is just going to be a naysayer on everything? Those are the squeaky wheels that get oil too much in the church to the distraction of doing the main thing in the church. So pastors do need more filters. It's difficult. And most pastors have not had training in leadership. Most pastors have not had training in, in uh, conflict resolution. But they do have the Word of God. And the Word of God and prayer is what they need more than anything. Hey guys, real quick, I've talked about this on the show before, but I've been experimenting with the idea of getting on the carnivore diet. And so I've got a good buddy, Chad Robichaud, who's been on the podcast that he's been on the carnivore diet for a while. He's seen a lot of great success. But the big thing that I've been worrying about is like, where do I get high quality beef? Like where exactly can I get beef where I can trust that's coming from a reputable source that it doesn't have a bunch of junk that's been in it. And I've been looking for a cattle operation partner to really partner up with. And that's why I want to introduce you to the new official beef delivery partner of Undaunted Life, and that's my friends at Primal Beef. So Primal Beef is a brand new cattle operation owned and operated by Sean Glass. So he is a retired Navy SEAL that served with Jocko Willing, and Jocko is also a partner in Primal Beef. So 
What makes Primal Beef different from the other fly-by-night beef delivery companies? It's a combination of the following. So it's all American Black Angus cattle. The beef comes from one farm, and that's in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Also, the beef is all natural. There are no, no hormones added ever, no antibiotics ever, no mRNA ever. And here's a cool thing. After slaughter, the beef is dry-aged, and then it's hand-cut by artisan butchers and then flash-frozen to ensure that it maintains the tenderness and marbling and flavor that you'll want by the time it gets to you. And here's another cool thing. For every box sold, guys, Primal Beef donates meat directly to a member of America's Special Operations Forces through the C4 Foundation. So you can take pride in knowing that your purchase will help literally put food on the table for one of America's finest warriors. So are you salivating yet? Because if not, you should be, guys. Try Primal Beef out today by going to www.primalbeef.com. That will be in the show notes. That's primalbeef.com. Use the promo code Kyle. That's my first name, K-Y-L-E, Kyle, for 10% off of your order. Again, that is primalbeef.com. Use the code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, to get 10% off of your order. When, again, if someone's given you uh, negative feedback, you can say, thank you so much for your honest feedback. What they're expecting mm -hmm. is for you to say, thank you so much for your honest feedback. Here are the 17 ways I'm going to change to acquiesce to your very specific requests. But if you just leave it there awkwardly, if they're dense, they won't get the point. So you might have to drive it home a little bit further. But if they can pick up on your, your cues, they can be like, okay, he doesn't agree with me. He's being nice. I've said my piece. I'm going to move on with my day. So I got, I, got, I got to give you this great illustration. Yeah, yeah, Excuse me. I got to give this great mm -hmm. illustration. Toja had three son pastors. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell you which one because people might be listening to you and they will be able to identify which one, but th this is a true story. Um, I was at the church when this happened. I saw it happen. Someone came up to my son right before the service began and they said, we're about to walk out on this church. He said, oh, tell me why. He said, we see who's singing. And we said, if she ever sings again, we're leaving. Oh. And my son looked at him and said, well, okay, see you later. And walked into the service. Yes. yes. <laughs> and they didn't come back. And the church was much healthier as a result. I tell people all the time, because you've heard my spiel, because you've been on a couple of times, before people come on, I kind of give them an idea of who their audience is. It's like, you know, it's this percentage male, it's typically rough, typically Christian, typically conservative. And I say, my audience is not easily offended, because we're over 500 episodes in at this point. If they were easily offended, they were gone a long time ago. And I have invited, Tom, I've invited a bunch of my critics to no longer listen to me. Because there will be people that will send me these very long emails that are just drawing on about their preferences. They're not legitimate criticisms because if I've said something that's incorrect, I want to be corrected. It's incumbent upon you as my fan, as my listener, as my viewer to correct the record if I've given it inaccurately. But I just say, hey, man, the good thing about this situation is there are roughly three million podcast shows on the planet. You have just discovered one of the ones that you can't stomach anymore. This is a great news. So I, I wish you well. Please get out of my inbox like that. It's, it's a nice way of doing it. So I feel like uh, you, your son and I are, are uh, kindred spirits as far as that goes. Now, I want to get into day nine. That's uh, right. where you're talking about the word. So here's a quote. Here's the essence of the pastoral dilemma in most churches. How much time should the pastor devote to prayer and teaching and how much to other ministry? There's no question that pastors are tugged into multiple directions. As a consequence, they may be tempted to substitute good 
for the best. Sure, they can be involved in the food ministry. That's a good outreach for the church, but pastors can be tugged in so many directions that they sacrifice spending time in prayer and in the word. Now, we're going to get more into this a little bit later when I start talking about you know, pastors that operate more like a CEO instead of a lead pastor. But obviously there are the visible things that the church can see teaching on Sunday morning, you know, speaking on Wednesday night, uh, being at the, the soup kitchen that the, the church provides for financially, those types of things. <clears throat> but then there is all the other things. Like I have good pastor friends that are like, look, I'm a terrible marriage counselor. And so when people come up to me, they're like, Hey, do you need me or do you need help? Because if you want me, it's not going to be very helpful. Let me get you to someone. Why do I identify you. with that? Do right. I identify with that? But, but the reality of is, of it, Tom is if you're going to hire a team as a pastor that cares about discipleship and cares about shepherding the flock, you want the flock to get the help from the most appropriate people. And that can't always be you. So talk to me a little bit about that dissonance. Well, the dissonance occurred early in the early church. Acts 6 is the, the point where the dissonance occurred, where the Grecian widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, which is just a fancy way of saying you had the, the, you, you had the Hebrew Christians and you had the Greek Christians. And because of familial ties, the, the Hebrew Christians were getting meals, but the Greek Christians were not. Hmm. And it became divisive within the church. And I though. I don't want to read into scripture too much. I can just imagine that there was this business meeting saying, you don't love us. You don't care for us. You're not doing this. And what did they say? They said, you know, it's not good for us to serve this food, but the food does need to be served. So we will find seven full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will ask them to do it. Why? Six, four. So we can give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of word. That is, is right at the beginning of the Jerusalem church. That is, that, is, that is not just something that happened in the 30s AD. That is something that is normative for us today. And most church members do not realize that the best thing a pastor can be doing is spending more time in the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word, which means he cannot spend time in everything else you want him to do. I know some pastors who feel like they have to show up at every committee meeting, who have to show up at every social event that occurs, and they are killing themselves doing things that are good, but not great. So I heard the story once, and <clears throat> I change the details a little bit every time because I forget it, but the, the gist of the story is great. So there was this amazing American table tennis player. Let's call it what it is. It's ping pong, but it's an American ping pong player, and he's good, but he's not great. But the great player, the best player in the world was this Chinese player. And so he's invited over to China to watch this guy play and watch this guy practice. And so the whole time he's watching this guy practice, all he's doing is hitting forehands. Forehands all day long. Forehands, forehands, forehands. The next day, training begins. The Chinese player, forehands, forehands, forehands. Finally, through an interpreter, the American asks the Chinese player, like, hey, you you have the best forehand in the world. Everyone already knows that. I haven't seen you work on any other parts of your game. Why are you only working on your forehand? And he said, well, that's the problem with you Americans is you try to make the things you suck at mediocre as opposed to making the things you're good at excellent or great. And so with this thing, if you're a pastor, if you were put on this planet to push back darkness by being on stage and preaching the word, that is your main focus. With this with this podcast, this ministry with Undaunted Life, there are things that I don't put you know, super full effort into because it doesn't really matter. It's not my, my bread and butter, but making great content, you know, uh, doing right by the people I'm interviewing, 
that's something that I take very, very seriously. So I will spend hours and hours and hours in preparation before the time of interview and before the time of release, because that is the the high leverage skill set that that I've been exactly. given as a gift. So does that make? Would you co-sign that? I will co-sign it. I will. I will put an exclamation point at the end, and I will make it redundant as a part of my speech too. Okay, very, very good. Well, the, the next one actually works uh, closely in concert with day nine, and that's day 11, and that's caregivers. So let me read this quote. Counseling, in some ways, is a subset of pastoral care. Pastors who counsel will meet with one person or a few people concerning a specific need. Pastoral care, on the other hand, is broader. It includes counseling, hospital visits, home hospice visits, telephone calls, emails, and other forms of communication with those in need. So... <clears throat> This is one place where I have been critical of mega church pastors. And I always try to delineate there are pastors that have enormous churches that care about the true gospel, exegeting the scripture and discipleship. So those just happen to be enormous churches. There are other mega churches where the guy basically read good to great and rich dad, poor dad, and then decided to start a church. And so this person doesn't have an elder board. They have a board of directors. That's all their buddies. They happen to be the chairman of that, that board as well. They have no one that can check them, no one that can, you know, basically call them on the carpet and they're whisked into the church before they deliver their speech in a, you know, blacked out SUV. And afterwards they're not staying and praying over people and shaking hands. They are whisked back away to wherever else they're needing to go. So they operate as a high leverage CEO and not a lowly pastor. <clears throat> it absolutely drives me nuts. I understand your entire life can't be hospice visits and answering phone calls and emails and, and doing counseling. But what do you have to say about those pastors that are just operating like they're, you know, applying for a job to have the next TED talk as opposed to making sure they're shepherding their flock? I don't think they're pastors. Bottom line, pastor mm -hmm. by the very definition has a shepherding understanding to it. And you may not can shepherd everybody, but you better have a shepherd heart and be prepared to shepherd those that God has put in into your path. And another thing is when that type of model is put before people, and I'm talking about the, those who are seeing it, it is something that makes pastors look like they don't care. It makes pastors overall bad people. And it's bad. I don't want to call pastors profession. I'll say it's bad for the calling. So I am glad out of 400,000 American churches that there are not that many of those, but there are enough of them and they're large enough that they're the ones that get the ink, uh, maybe the digital print. They're, mm. they're, they're, they're the ones that get the attention and they are not good for the kingdom and they're not good for churches. I'm, I'm just hesitant to call that type of model a pastor at all. I was going to be honest, you're normally pretty polite, and that seemed downright rude, Tom. I love it. I love that you uh, you kind of ripped the Band-Aid off on that one, but <clears throat> I think you're absolutely right. These jobs have titles, and those titles have job descriptions. And where do we get those job descriptions? From a book that we purportedly say is the living, inerrant Word of God. And so if True. you're not doing the things in that book that give you the title that you've taken for yourself— then what exactly are you doing? And, and that's the thing. And then we can get into other ministries like Robbie Zacharias comes to mind. You know, his name is on the masthead. And so nobody could really call him on his stuff. He had insulated himself from rebuke. And then obviously we saw some horrific things that happened uh, with his ministry. But now let's go to something that I, I was shocked that you, you covered this, but I was really glad that you did. It's day 14. It's called Funerals. So let's read a quote here. Perhaps the most difficult funeral is for someone who was not a Christian. 
How can mm-hmm. a pastor who believes John 14, 6, that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, offer hope and compassion to the family of the deceased? Certainly, he can give a clear gospel presentation, but what can he say about the person's eternal home? Most pastors simply don't address that painful reality. Now, I'm not going to presume anything in this question because I've never been on that side. I've only been on the side of the people that have lost a loved one or something like that. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't sit at funerals wondering whether the deceased was in heaven or or in hell because I saw no fruit of the gospel in their life that would make me believe that they are in heaven. But we love to play our Christian songs at funerals. We love to say they're in a better place. We love to give the eulogy and look up at the sky and say, I'll see you again someday. But for the most part, none of that's biblical. None of that is something that that we can really get into. So talk to me a little bit more about an impossible situation for a pastor to find themselves in. Audience may not be the best description, but you have two groups listening to you when you do the funeral of a non-Christian. You have the family, and then you have everybody else. And the family does need love, compassion, and understanding. I don't think I would recommend saying, by every measure, this person is now burning in hell. I don't think I would use that as part of the funeral because you have to have compassion on the family. But you cannot be disingenuous. You cannot... You cannot compromise truth. And so at this point, you're not only speaking to the family, but you're speaking to everyone else. And you're saying, let's talk about eternal life. Not, and again, you're not pointing to the deceased, but let's talk about eternal life. That is an incredible opportunity to share the gospel without being offensive to the family. And I've done a lot of funerals of a lot of people that I presume were not believers. I didn't even know them, most of them, when I was asked to do the funeral. But from what I heard, they were not. And I never stopped sharing the gospel, and I never had a family say, well, that was offensive because I know that you you really meant that my husband or my dad or my mom or my wife uh, was not that person. No, they need to hear the truth. The most pastoral thing that you can do for anyone is to point them to eternal life through Jesus Christ. And if you don't do that in a funeral, you have missed that God-given opportunity to share what God really wants you to share. When I think <clears throat> you're you're displaying a way where you can toe the line between really holding the line for truth while at the same time not, you know, resurrecting the dead person to kill them again. And and that's because again, can you imagine the fight that could ensue at a funeral if you say, Well, that guy over there, that dead guy, definitely in hell. But for you today, I've got a an a, you know, a message of hope that probably wouldn't go well for you. So I appreciate your perspective on that. Day 15, you talk about weariness and, you know, it's just like with the other chapters, you have, you know, some commentary, some scripture in, in your own thoughts. And I, I got to tell you, I keep hearing about these weary pastors whose lives are so hard, but at some point, Tom, I just want to say you have a hard job, suck it up, quit complaining. Like there are plenty of jobs out there that are harder than yours. And those guys don't get sabbaticals every two or three years or something like that. Like my dad, I love and respect him so much for this. He busted his tail for 40 plus years working at a factory so that I never had to worry about living indoors or getting a hot meal. I never had to worry about that because my dad busted his tail working, rotating shifts. He never got more than a few days off in his entire career at a time. And again, not every pastor is the same, not every church is the same, not everybody even does a sabbatical, like I get it. 
But part of me is like, goodness gracious, can you complain some more? Wow, you got to have a hard job. Like, why should I feel that bad for them and not for all these other folks? Well, first of all, most pastors do not complain. So I, I just want I want to make that very, very clear. We do ha- we do hear the negatives and we do hear about those. So that's one thing I want to share out of, you know, 400,000 churches. I don't have a percentage, but it's a very small percentage. And I want to be very careful, Kyle, with this next statement. I got to say it very carefully because it is not a blanket statement. Mm. But sometimes pastors are weary because they haven't been called to do what they do. Oh, and then when the negative stuff hits, they don't have the calling of God to turn back to, to say, I need, I know God called me to this. And if he called me to it, he is going to see me through it. I am talking with close to 10 pastors right now who are now questioning whether God really called them into ministry or their family tradition called them into ministry. Hmm. And those, those, those men good men, but probably not called men, are feeling the weariness because they don't have that sense that God got me in this. And so I'm ready to get out of it. But I want to be very careful. I don't want your viewer or listener to hear me say, if you get weary, you're not called. I'm just saying that is a common issue that we often see in weary pastors. If you're not called, you can't do it. So how does a pastor go... Gosh, this is a one-size-fits-all question, but here it is. But how does a pastor determine that? Because there are a lot of people, Tom, that are in jobs that they took excitedly. They were excited to take this job. They applied for it on purpose. It's kind of like for me, I get criticized for this, but I don't like when teachers complain about how much they make. In Oklahoma, we don't pay our teachers very well, but they went to school to be a teacher. They got their degree in teaching. They sought out a job in teaching. They applied for that job. They interviewed for that job. They accepted that job. They choose to still work at that job. Okay, then you have that job now. Why are you complaining? Like when NFL guys want to hold out because they want a bigger contract. like you signed the contract. Like play the contract that you signed, right? And so how does somebody determine when they're stuck in the thing, specifically pastors, like, wait a minute, did I make a huge mistake? How do I get this egg off my face? These pastors, at least anecdotally, those to whom I speak, knew that they weren't called before the pain hit. But they were, it it they they were able to stay and get a paycheck because there was not the conflict. But everyone I'm with whom I'm speaking right now, they 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 could say I never had a sense of God's call. So it's not how do I discern I don't have a call. They knew that that was not the case. And okay, why did they do that? Well, sometimes it's family pressure, sometimes it's financial need. And I've had three pastors in the last week tell me it's the only thing I know to do. I just don't know what to do beyond Mm. this. And so, again, no blanket statements here, Kyle. I love I love pastors. But those are some of the issues that we see in pastors who are weary. Well, that's another thing that I've never really thought about is a pastor that's sitting in that seat that probably shouldn't be there because I mean, you probably know this because you're in this world. But like I have never I very rarely ran across former pastors. Right. It's typically they're either currently a pastor or they're aspiring to be one. And it's not like, oh, yeah, hey, I used to work in insurance. I used to mow lawns. Uh, I used to run an entire church. I shepherded a flock uh, by which I'm going to have to give an account to God for someday. And now I'm selling insurance again. Right. Like it's not you You never see that trajectory for somebody. So I guess that would be interesting for somebody to to kind of move in that direction. Uh, uh, let, uh, yeah. let me say we're, we are seeing that trajectory more today, though. Hmm. We are seeing the trajectory where you are running into more former pastors than you used to. 
And I, th I think a lot of it has been heightened by the culture and the times that we're in, but some of them are finally saying, I'm not meant to be here and I'm going to be a former pastor. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that because one thing that you need in order to stand up to an atheistic culture is courage. And that's what you deal with in day 19. So let me read this quote here. <clears throat> I've worked with num numerous pastors who struggled because they didn't grasp the importance of leadership, or perhaps they didn't think they were leaders. So they avoided leading. They preached well, they taught well, they did pastoral care well, but they felt woefully inadequate when they were confronted with decisions that required courageous leadership. So one of my bugaboos are these lamb only pastors that have no lion in them. And so I love what Jordan Peterson says about men. It's like a, a weak man is not a good man. A weak man is a useless man. A good man is a man that is capable of incredible fits, feats of strength in every way possible, but they know when it's appropriate to show it. They're like a knight with their sword in the sheath and they only pull the sword when they know they need to use it. But when they pull it, they know what they're doing. And so pastors, got smacked up side beside their heads in 2020 when COVID hit. They didn't know what to do. They'd never really reckoned with what would happen if the government said, no, you're not allowed to go to church. You're not essential, but the titty bar and the weed shop, those are essential, right? They, they didn't really take that into consideration. Black Lives Matter, George Floyd overdoses in police custody. All of a sudden the world's on fire. Pastors had no idea what to do. The LGBTQ, the trans, all these different revolutions that are coming inside of public schools, inside of culture, inside of universities, whatever. They're woefully unprepared, and part of it is because they're cowards. In their core of their belly, they are cowardly men, and they're doing nothing to try to make themselves the opposite of that, to be courageous, strong men. So take that wherever you want to go with it. When I think of courageous pastors, I don't necessarily think of those who have an MBA before they went into ministry. I don't necessarily think of those who went to some institute of leadership or have read the right books, though they may have. When I think of pastors who are courageous, I think of pastors who are courageous because they tried to be courageous. Now, think about that for a minute. Caleb, I don't know a whole lot about Caleb other than the the wilderness wanderings and getting to the promised land and at 85 saying, I'll, I'll give me that mountain, I will take it. I don't know a lot more about him other than he was one of the minority report that said we can go in the promised land. God told us we can take it because it is there and God promised it. I don't see any indication that he was a naturally courageous person. I think that he's a supernaturally courageous person. And if he's one of two of 12 who, who were part of the minority report to say, let's take this land. God has promised it to us. He did it because he did it. Cur courage does not mean that you are excited about facing something fearful. It just means you do it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's what courage is. And if a pastor decides to back off of some of the critical biblical issues, that is lack of courage. How do you overcome that? You be courageous. I mean, that, 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 that sounds a little circular, but you be courageous. That's well, it. No, it doesn't sound circular. I will honor it. No, Tom, it doesn't sound circular. I remember back in the day, so I follow this guy, Jocko Willink. He's a best-selling author of the book Extreme Ownership, former Navy SEAL, you know, <clears throat> wake up at four o'clock in the morning every day to work out type of guy. And he was doing this Q&A on Twitter years ago. And someone messaged him and said, hey, I, I really struggle with pull-ups. Uh, how would you suggest I get better at doing pull-ups? And what do you think his answer was? Do more pull-ups. Do more pull-ups. That's the answer. Do more pull-ups. People that are out of shape, overweight, it's like, man, I really wish I knew how to get out of shape and, and you know, really take care of this. It's like, have you ever tried putting on your workout shoes and going to the gym? Have you ever tried going for a run? Have you ever tried putting the second donut down before you even get to the third, fourth, or fifth? But I think the best example of this that I've ever seen, Tom, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
And so I've talked about him on this show repeatedly. Eric Metaxas's book, his uh, biography of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of the best biographies I've ever read. One of the best books I've ever read, but here's the thing. I really do. Okay. Well, you'll learn about that. And then in the subsequent writing, the letter to the American church, where he talks about Dietrich Bonhoeffer again, this was not a six foot five, 250 pound Adonis of a man. This guy didn't have an extra vocal fold so he could scream like Matt Chandler. This guy wasn't delivering two and three hour booming sermons like Charles Spurgeon. This was by all intents and purposes, a fairly diminutive guy. Like he wasn't very big. He wasn't the best athlete. He was kind of a bookworm, kind of a nerd, but he was also a gangster that tried to kill Hitler. And so like that, that's the thing is like most people think their immutable characteristics or their natural wiring is, well, I'm just not courageous by nature. Well, it's like, no, you're not practicing courage. So how do you expect your courage to grow? But to go back to specifically the fights that are in culture, some of the most godless ideologies, like the transing of the kids uh, is as one example between that mm. and the, the killing of the unborn. I can't really see much that's that's more satanic than those two ideologies attacking life itself and then attacking uh, the, the binary nature of sex and gender, uh, which are the same thing, by the way. Most pastors, Tom, will not touch those subjects. And they will hide behind a veil of, well, I just want to be winsome. I just, I don't want to be needlessly divisive. And the problem is, is their flock that they've said they would like to shepherd in a good way. They're confused about how to operate in culture when their son comes home from school and says, Hey, you know, my friend, Ben, he says that I should call him Jennifer now. And he's wearing dresses. What is it? What's happening? Like, I thought he was a boy. And they can't lean on their pastor for understanding because their pastor is too much of a coward to bring it up. So what is your suggestion to these pastors that are like, look, I just, you know, I just want to do the Bible. I only want to talk about gospel issues. And they pretend like life and the snuffing out of innocent human life is not a gospel issue. What would you suggest for those people to do to help steal their nerves? Well, well, first of all, you, you really hit it when you said, they only want to do gospel issues, but they're not doing gospel issues. Life is a gospel issue. Thank you. Creation of who we are and our, our sexual identity is a gospel issue. All of those are gospel issues. So you're compromising the gospel when, when you do that. I think what happens to those who do not have that courage, I'm, I'm getting back to the spies again, but I think basically they rot in the wilderness. They're not effective. Mm. They don't have a ministry because their ministry is one of compromise instead of one of conviction. And they have been called to preach the word, do the word, and do so uncompromisingly. And there is a lot in the Bible that goes against culture, perhaps more today than any point in my lifetime. And if the Bible goes against culture, we have to take that same biblical stand regardless of the response. And Tom, I think it's bumper bumper sticker theology that comes to this because you have these people that say things that that look good on a t-shirt. It's, I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. This church is going to be known for what it's for, not what it's against. This church is going to draw circles and not draw lines, even though a line is, or a circle is literally a line that's connected and you're either inside of the circle or outside of the circle. So it's a line. But at the same time, most of these pastors think to themselves, I'm going to say things to make nice, nice with culture. So last thing on this before uh, we get to the last day that I want to cover here. A lot of pastors have bought into the lie that if they're nice enough to culture, that culture will love them back. 
And so they've created these churches and these Sunday morning experiences that feel a lot like culture. Uh, they play secular music to warm the people up before they get into the mildly Jesus is my boyfriend music. You know, they're they're putting on the rock concert. They're doing the the incredibly communicative TED talk with a few Bible verses sprinkled over the top so they can keep their tax exempt status. And then they're sending everybody off with, you know, a Frappuccino and a bag of chips. And when something is so like culture, how is it possible that you're going to call everybody to something that is as countercultural as the acceptance of the gospel? And so what is your, again, just your advice as a pastor, former pastor, and as, as a writer in this area for those pastors that kind of want to just go along to get along, not really rock the boat, not really mess with the gravy train of people donating to their ministry and really start tackling issues that we need in a time such as this? There's the biblical response and the biblical response is you cannot compromise what the Bible says. So no matter what we do, we got to say, okay, that's what the Bible says. That's that. That's it. There's also, I don't want to call this pragmatic, but I want these pastors who think they have to uh, compromise with culture in order to have a healthy church. I want them to hear this. That was a trend that came with probably more the baby boomer generation. That trend is going away and culture is becoming clearer what it is for and what it is against. And what we are seeing, Cal, is Healthy churches, not necessarily mega churches, not necessarily large churches, healthy churches are now taking stands that are countercultural and sometimes anti-cultural, and those are becoming some of the healthiest churches we know. We have been doing doctrinal surveys of churches since 1996. That sounds boring. I mean, it sounds like I don't have a life, which is probably <laughs> true. I don't have a life. If we're doing that, but I really want to know what's in the lives of church members and church members take these surveys. So we have what's called a longitudinal study. We see what people believe over the years. The two things that are being compromised more than anything is the exclusivity of salvation to Christ. This is church members, active church members saying we don't believe that Jesus is the only way. More and more of them are doing that. And surprisingly, the other part is that Jesus sinned more and more church members are saying that, that Jesus sinned. What is happening mm. to those churches that have had eroding doctrine? Now they are about to go away. Only the, five to 10 years from now, this is, this may be prophetic and you'd have to stone me if I don't come, mm. if it's not close to being true, but five to 10 years from now, those will not be the churches that are standing. Culture isn't going to compromise culture. So no matter how much you try to, to accede to culture, it's going to be culture. You're not going to win them over. Culture isn't going to compromise culture would be the title of this episode if I didn't already name it, When the People Pray, because again, that's the center point of what we're talking about today. So let's wrap up the book by talking about day 24. So this is talking about temptation. Here's a quote. Sometimes the loneliness a pastor experiences can lead to sexual temptation. Sometimes the financial pressures in a pastor's life can lead to financial temptation, but the devil works on a pastor's ego as well. If a pastor thinks congregational adulation is true and deserved, he may yield to the temptation of power and control. It is a very dangerous situation when pastors begin to think they are invincible. Why did you use the word invincible? I thought that was an interesting way to put a fine point on that point, rather. When pastors feel like sexual temptation, they will not yield to sexual temptation, to financial temptation, to the temptation of power. The reason they do that is because they do not think that it will ultimately get to them, which is one of the greatest lies of Satan that they can believe. If you start saying, as 
as a Christian in general, but as a pastor in particular, I am above that. What you're basically saying is you have a new idol and that new idol is me. I am strong enough to be above this. And this type of temptation can happen fairly easily. Two counseling sessions can go to turn into an affair. Um, an overdrawn checking account can result in some financial misappropriation. And enough praise from within the church about how wonderful you are can convince you that you are not a sinner. So all of that is what we have to be on the lookout for. There is criticism. There are tough times. But some of the greatest dangers are in what we perceive are the good times. And it's that ego that you have to keep in check. It, what's funny is I kind of got an ego check that I brought on myself a few weeks ago. I was making a comment to my wife and I was like, babe, I don't make mistakes when it comes to my show. Like, because I, I'll misspeak and I'll say words wrong or whatever, but it's like, I don't make mistakes. And I've literally just been a litany of mistakes, like uploading the wrong audio, misspelling something in a title, posting something at the wrong time. And it's just like, okay, all right. God, can you stop? Can can I have my brain back? Like, I get it. I get it. But, you know, my wife just kind of looked at me and gave me that wifely look because she can push back on me and she knows how to do so. And that's the thing that I want pastors to have is I want them to have not just employees, not just elders, but boys, like have some boys around you that it's like, man, those are going to be the guys that have no problem grabbing you by the scruff of your neck after, you know, a sermon and being like, that was terrible. What's wrong with you? Snap out of it. Like, and if you don't have those types of guys around you, you're not going to be emboldened to do the things that you need to do. But Tom, I always enjoy whenever you come on the show, we always bounce around to a million different subjects and you're always very good to weave in and out, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? I don't have anything else to get off my chest. My word to you is thank you for having me and thank you for taking the type of stand you do, Kyle. I appreciate you. Tom Raider, thank you for coming back on A Daunted Life, A Man's Podcast. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed the return appearance of Tom Rayner on the show. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a link to where you can buy your copy of When the People Pray and also a link to Church Answers. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>